Ed Burke, who held his seat in the 14th Ward for more than 50 years and dominated Chicago politics along the way, on Thursday was found guilty of all but one of the 14 counts brought against him by federal prosecutors. Burke was convicted of racketeering, attempted extortion, conspiracy to commit extortion, and promoting bribery, official misconduct, and extortion. He was acquitted of a single count of using an interstate facility to promote bribery and official misconduct. Good afternoon. My name is Morris Pasquale. I'm the acting United States Attorney for the Northern District of Illinois here in Chicago. I'd like to start first by thanking the members of the jury in this case who answered their call to service and served conscientiously over the many weeks of this trial. This case was about bribery and extortion occurring at the highest levels of Chicago city government. Our office represents the people of the United States. The people have a right to honest and open government where decisions about official actions that public officials take or do not take are based not on their own private financial interest, but on the public interest. Burke is set to be sentenced in mid-June and faces a maximum of 20 years in prison. Co-defendant Peter Andrews, a Burke political aide, was acquitted of all charges. His other co-defendant, real estate developer Charles Quee, was convicted on five counts. Burke, a lawyer who ruled the city council finance committee for more than 30 years, sat motionless with his hands folded under his chin as the verdicts were read. Burke, his wife, and attorneys left the courthouse without comment. Burke's corruption trial has been five years in the making. On November 29th of 2018, federal authorities conducted a sprawling investigation of Burke, his top political aide Andrews, and local developer Quee. That day, the feds raided Burke's offices and interviewed both Andrews and Quee. I have always cooperated in investigations. I will fully cooperate in this one. And I'm confident that there'll be nothing found to be amiss. In May of 2019, a federal grand jury indicted Burke on racketeering and bribery charges. I haven't done anything wrong, and I'm looking forward to uh, my day in court. Among the charges in the 19-count indictment, Burke was accused of soliciting legal work from developers involved in the old post office renovation and the owners of a Burger King undergoing construction in his ward. Burke was also accused of using his position as an alder to obtain legal business from Cui in exchange for help with a pole sign permit at the developer's property in Portage Park. The government also charged that Burke had threatened field museum workers after the museum had failed to respond to Burke's request about an intern for the daughter of his friend, former alderperson Terry Gabinski. As the 12-person jury sat in their box for nearly six weeks, members of the public packed the wooden benches on the 25th floor of the Dirksen Federal Building to watch the trial. No day during the trial drew as many curious citizens, though, as the day of Danny Solis's testimony. Burke defense lawyers called the former 25th Ward alderperson to the stand on December 12th in a bid to muddy up the FBI informant's credibility. When the feds knocked on Solis's door on June 6th of 2016, he made a deal to save himself from his own corruption violations. Solis agreed to wear a wire and capture conversations with Burke. Hey, Ed, it's Danny. Hey, Danny, how are you? Um, very good. I, I think I've got some good news. I talked to Sky Dell today. So did we Can land the, uh, the tuna? And it may not be the last time Solis appears in the federal courthouse, as he also recorded former House Speaker Mike Madigan. 
Reaction to Burke's conviction came in on Thursday, including a statement from Chicago Mayor Brandon Johnson, which read, quote, elected officials are responsible for serving with honesty and integrity, with a moral responsibility to their constituents to uphold and abide by the law. His statement continued, quote, in the case that they fail to do so, it is imperative that they are held accountable. This is what the jury decided today. A statement from former Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot read, quote, with this jury's verdict, Ed Burke should rightfully be remembered as a man who elevated personal ambition and greed over doing the people's work. Her statement later said, quote, but like many before who feasted on their gluttonous power, Burke was felled because this total lack of accountability made him foolishly think he was invincible. Burke's longtime Southwest Side nemesis, U.S. Representative Jesus Chuy Garcia, who supported candidates opposing Burke for Alder and Democratic committeemen, said, quote, Today, a long history of corrupt Chicago politics righted itself. A man who abused his position of trust for over 50 years, who manipulated the public for his personal gain, was rightfully reproached. Crane's John Pletz reported that Joe Ferguson, a former federal prosecutor who spent 12 years as the city's inspector general, laments that Burke's conviction is, quote, another situation where the criminal justice system has to stand in for a political system that should be self-regulating. So Alderman Burke obviously joins a long list of corrupt city council aldermen who have been convicted of corruption charges over here in federal court. So we're all asking, does that even change anything? Well, it changes some things, but it's not going to change as much as everybody would hope. Uh, you know, there's a, there's just such an overwhelming uh, history of corruption. I mean, we've had several governors convicted in this state and still there are indictments um, on a regular basis. So it probably doesn't change overnight, uh, but it does change some things. There's evidence that uh, the city council is is making some changes about things like the outside employment of uh, of aldermen. Uh, so, you know, these things happen slowly, uh, but there are signs that you're seeing some changes. But, you know, uh, you've got to remember that uh, Chicago is a place that famously wasn't ready for reform and still might not be fully there. Alyssa Kaplan, executive director of the nonpartisan advocacy group Reform for Illinois, said she's also troubled by the lack of statehouse reform, but takes some consolation in the Burke case, saying, quote, this verdict absolutely makes a difference. Also saying, quote, Burke is an icon of the old way of doing business. This sends a strong message to our elected officials to think twice before engaging in this type of behavior. She also said, quote, when the federal investigation became public, there was a push for Chicago to ban this type of outside work by aldermen, and they actually did it. She added, however, quote, we need to see more proactive reform instead of just reactive, though. We shouldn't have to wait until something egregious like this becomes public to make changes. Are you sick of not being your bank's top priority? We are too. At Wintrust, we take a different approach to banking. We're proud to be your one true banking partner focused on your unique financial goals that's right in your backyard. Whether you're opening your first account, buying a home, planning for the future, or starting a business, we have tailored solutions to get you there. Stop settling and start experiencing a better way to bank at Wintrust.com. Wintrust, different approach, better results. Banking products provided by Wintrust Financial. Financial Corporation Banks, member FDIC.
All right, I'm joined by Cranes reporters Lee John Greco and Justin Lawrence here to review the year, close it out, and uh, look ahead into the new year. I mean, it's never a dull moment on the beat that the two of you share. <laughs> it's never a dull moment in the city of Chicago. This year, of course, no exception. But what big stories stand out to the two of you in 2023? Well, I, I mean, I think the first big story, right? We had a, a major municipal election, so we we... Uh, as of uh, May, have a brand new mayor. The first thing that I want to say is to the Chicagoans who did not vote for me. Here's what I want you to know. Here's what I want you to know. That I care about you. I value you. And I want to hear from you. I want to work with you. And I'll be the mayor for you, too. Yes! And also, the bigger story earlier on in the year was Mayor Lori Lightfoot being denied not only a second term, but being, you know, being completely shut out of the runoff to, to even really make it that far. We were fierce competitors in these last few months, um, but I will be rooting and praying for our next mayor to deliver uh, for the people of the city for years to come. Obviously, we didn't win the election today, but I stand here with my head held high and a heart full of gratitude. And regardless of tonight's outcome, we fought the right fights and we put this city on a better path. Uh, and, you know, now now we have a new mayor and every week we learn a little bit more about how he's operating and what his plans are. And uh, they've had a lot of wins over the last uh during the fall, you know, around budget season and, and with some of the progressive policies that they pushed forward. But um, it was also a bit chaotic. It, it was it was done in a way that kind of uh, maybe upset some people. So that, that the ramifications of that will come forward in the in the next year. Sure. Lee, how about you? What, what big stories stick out to you? Well, I think, uh, you know, as Justin kind of mentioned a little bit, some of the wins uh, that the mayor has had, or rather his progressive allies in council have had, um, really stick out for me. So, you know, tipped wage is obviously a big one. That's been pretty fascinating for me to follow because uh, I moved to Chicago from D.C. and they had a very long fight over that where back in, gosh, maybe 2018 or 2019 that the city originally voted for it, um, meaning like the citizens of D.C. voted for it and then their council overturned it. Um, so comparatively, I think Chicago actually had um, an easier go of it. Of course, they had um, more support in city council. I also found it was interesting. It, it didn't seem like the head of the restaurant association maybe gave as much pushback as he could have. Justin, I'd be interested in, in your take on that sort of, um, you know, the strategy um, that the Restaurant Association took on that? I mean, there were certainly people that were upset that felt they could have maybe just gone all out against it. Whether it was going to be pushed or not, they should have stated their opposition that we we oppose this at all costs. I, I, think, I think the other side of that, the flip side of that, that Sam Toya, the head of the Restaurant Association, would, would tell you is that he there was no scenario where they were going to win this, right? They, they realized that the other side had the votes. And so they, they kind of worked behind the scenes to, to reach something that was more palatable to, 
for restaurants, which is that five-year ramp to to eliminate the the subminimum wage for tipped workers. So it certainly caused some frustration. He would point out that his entire board did approve his actions, you know, but it was it was a chance, early chance to kind of dig their heels in and say we're opposed to these measures at all costs. And they they chose the lighter route of kind of digging into a, or finding a compromise, even though they they still express their reservations about uh, the plan. They they did broker that five year. And then I think similarly, probably the other big thing that happened this year, which is also going to be something to watch uh, next year, is uh, the so-called mansion tax, um, which, of course, the real estate industry uh, is against. Um, The council did work out basically a tiered system so that sales, I should say, because uh, commercial uh, sales are part of this too. It's going to go down uh, for sales under a million dollars, the one-time tax. And then it's actually going to go up for sales between 1 million and 1.5 million. And then the next year is sales over 1.5 million. Um, and that's going to be quadruple the current rate. Um, and even though this is a one-time tax, it's you know just when the sale happens, I do think for context, these transfer taxes have actually gone down. I think this was something that was also mentioned in the budget that Johnson introduced. So, you know, th- that's important to know. You know, business leaders are saying, hey, we understand that homelessness is a problem, but this isn't coming in at a great time for us. Vacancies downtown are still uh, at an all time high. So, this will be something that voters will have to consider uh, when this goes on the ballot this spring. Uh, So it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out. And I think really interesting to see sort of the lobbying effort or the campaign effort uh, behind this, because, you know, as we mentioned, it's going to go down for sales under a million dollars. So that's really a majority of properties and especially, you know, the properties for just kind of like most normal Chicagoans. Uh, So it's not like they have to convince, you know, the so-called, we'll say 1% of Chicagoans, uh, that this is a bad idea. It's kind of convincing like your middle-class voters that this is a bad idea when in fact it will give them a break. Yeah. Yeah. You know, another story that, that I feel like it's been ongoing, but, but one that really had a lot of attention in 2023 and will continue into 2024 is people seeking asylum that have been sent to Chicago and and other cities from border states. I think that became such a big part of of the political beat this year. Uh, You know, what what about that stood out to you in your reporting and maybe what, you know, what seemed like it took a, a turn you didn't see coming or something like that? Yeah, I mean, I really think this is the story of the year, especially, you know, for our beats, because it touches every single level of government. It touches the local government, the county, which is providing all of the health services for these asylum seekers, the governor, and then, of course, the federal government, which, you know, a lot of people are arguing needs to take more responsibility of this situation. And as you said, what's happening is uh, these asylum seekers, they're coming mostly from Venezuela. But, you know, we should know there are also people coming from Africa. They're coming from Haiti. um, So, you know, folks around the world and crossing over the border. And then, of course, a lot of these border governors are sending them to places like Chicago and New York. 
Now, according to city officials, according to their numbers that they track, the number of buses that they're tracking, those have gone up since the city announced that the DNC is coming here because so much of this is really just a political effort by Republicans to make Chicago look bad for the DNC. I mean, all eyes are going to be on the city. There are going to be national reporters here, international reporters here. And that's going to be a terrible look for Biden that, you know, he and this new progressive mayor seemingly can't handle all of these people who are looking for a place to live. And so, you know, we've had a lot of news come out, a lot of these Friday news dumps, uh, which I'm sure, you know, Justin can touch on the latest for that. Yeah, we'll see how they they continue to handle it. Like the the buses did tick up in the early fall. Uh, You know, at, at one point they were fretting and kind of sounding the clarion call that they were worried about 20 buses a day, which was much higher than, than had been happening. And we never quite saw that. It, it, it kind of petered up, not peter, but kind of peaked around like 12 a day. And then it slowly reduced. And now, you know, we're seeing as many, much less than five, like as many as one or two a day. Um, so we'll see how that continues throughout the winter. But, you know, they did, they did make some big changes in the last, over the last month or two and how we respond, uh, essentially saying the city is, is going to limit the amount of support that we provide people uh, when they get here. So we're, the city's going, Johnson announced 60 day shelter stays for people entering the, entering the city's shelters. Those notices will go out at different times, depending on how long people have been there. The state is limiting the amount of money that they're providing in, in rental assistance to people. I forget the exact date, but when they made that announcement, um, you know, going into effect that day that they made the announcement, uh, they would no longer provide rental assistance assistance to anybody coming into a shelter after that day. So, you know, the city and state are, are even as they continue to care for migrants, are saying we can't um, we can't provide it indefinitely, and that's something we're going to have to watch shake out because these these initial sixty eight 60-day notices uh, are coming due in in February and March. Um, You know, as everybody in Chicago knows, those are days when, or periods when when we can see severe cold. So will they actually put people out on the street? Will they actually uh, force people out of the shelters if if it's, uh, we're seeing that kind of winter that we typically have is something we'll have to watch. And then we'll have to watch if, if the buses continue to pick up, especially as we get closer to DNC next year, it might be an issue where maybe the city has a bit of a respite over the winter to really truly figure out how they want to handle this and get a much more coordinated and kind of on top of it uh, system in place for when buses eventually start arriving in mass. I think the other interesting thing about this situation is how it is illustrated what seems to be a fairly rocky relationship between the mayor and the governor. Um, You know, we saw earlier this fall before veto session that the mayor and uh, other city officials were saying, we really need more help from the state. We can't possibly just keep throwing city funds at this problem. And then, of course, J.B. Pritzker would say, listen, we've already given you enough money. Um, Money doesn't grow on trees. I heard that phrase actually from folks uh, who work for the state. They would say, hey, money doesn't grow on trees. And then all of a sudden, at the last minute, J.B. Pritzker comes out and ends up giving the city more money. Um, 
it didn't seem like it was a coordinated effort. And it, it just feels like he and Johnson are not on the same page. And you have city officials who are just outright confrontational uh, with the governor. Uh, we have the mayor's former uh, floor leader, um, Carlos Ramirez Rosa, who went on a tweet storm earlier this fall against the governor. Uh, so that was not a great look. So we'll we'll see how that relationship uh, moves forward because the governor didn't have a great relationship with the previous mayor, Lori Lightfoot, either. So uh, I think one of the progressives mentioned might have been Ramirez Rosa recently who said, well, what's the common denominator there? Right. It was interesting timing because it was kind of right on the heels of Mayor Johnson talking about these limits, these, you know, these 60 day stay notices and changing rental assistance policy. It was kind of right. I feel like it was within a day. So it just didn't seem like a coordinated announcement when Pritzker said, you know, hey, here's one hundred and sixty million dollars to go to this cause. It seemed like it was it was a bit out of step. Um, but you both mentioned the DNC, which is obviously going to be a big part of of the year ahead. How do you anticipate that manifesting uh, on your beat? How's that going to go? Well, it'll certainly be a big part of it. You know, like obviously the DNC is here because the Democrats have to uh, nominate someone for president. It's obviously unless something major happens, it's going to be President Joe Biden uh, being renominated for for reelection. Um, so, like presidential politics isn't fully on our beat. I mean, it, it's certainly something we'll cover going forward. But uh, yeah, Chicago has a big role to play, and with the DNC coming here, I think. What, what we'll be looking at is how does uh, how does the city prepare for it? Can Johnson and, and Pritzker kind of get on the same page and leading up to it? Um, you know, we're, this is in the city, but I think uh, Pritzker played such a role, a big role with along with a former or with Lightfoot bringing it to here. And he obviously seems to have some pretty big ambitions for his own political career after 2024. So I think, uh, you know, this is kind of his baby. It's his time to to shine on a national stage, to to probably give one of the big speeches during the actual convention itself and and show people that he's kind of ready for prime time. Um, for us, it'll be interesting as well to see the, look, it's the DNC in Chicago. There's going to be protests. Um, and now with, you know, with a war in, in the Middle East, it seems like that might be the, the animating aspect of those protests. So it's going to be very heated and very um, confrontational. And we'll have to see how Mayor Johnson responds uh, to that uh, playing out in the streets. Yeah, I think, Justin, as you mentioned, um, I'm going to be looking at this probably as a real dress rehearsal for J.B. Pritzker. Um, And like you said, this is really his baby. I haven't seen yet, and this will be something that I'm tracking over the next couple months, is like a real push from Johnson I haven't seen him really orchestrating this DNC the way we saw, you know, with Daly at the last DNC that Chicago hosted. Um, and of course, as you mentioned, like Chicago has an interesting history with DNCs. So it'll be interesting to see whether this shapes up like the one in the 90s or will this shape up like the one in the 60s? Because not only do we have these protests over what's happening in Gaza, but Again, the migrant crisis, I think, is going to play a role here as well. Earlier in the fall, Alderwoman Jeanette Taylor had mentioned that, you know, if something wasn't done to basically help Native Chicagoans, particularly Black Chicagoans, you know, more money, more 
resources weren't given to them while we're giving all of these resources to new migrants that she was going to protest at the DNC. So, you know, will we see that? Will we see this cleave between progressives and I don't want to say conservative Democrats, but we'll say mainstream Democrats uh, at this DNC? That'll be something interesting to watch. Yeah, certainly. It will uh, It will be very difficult, I have a feeling, to get either of you uh, to join the podcast during the DNC time. It'll just be very, very busy. I'll just have to run behind you with a microphone and get what I can from you. So I'd have to just shoot voice memos from the field. <laughs> That's fine. I can work I mean, with that. Uh, it will also just be a big party, right? Like, uh, you know, there will be, uh, it'll probably be mostly centered around uh, McCormick Place, all the kind of like subsidiary events that happen with lobbying groups or trade show or trade associations and industry groups. And I'm sure, you know, major companies will throw their own little soirees and, and delegations from all across the country will be here. So it will be, a, you know, that's uh, kind of what the Chicago's like hospitality industry was a part of and launching this bid that, Hey, like where better to throw a party than Chicago in the summer. Um, so we'll be keeping track of that. And then also it'll be interesting how the city just comes across, right? Like, uh, that 96 convention, so much of it was about like kind of beautifying the area between the Loop and the United Center. And I, I'm sure that some of that will happen now. But, um, you know, one of the major things or reasons that we made our case to host the convention is that we're kind of like a turnkey operation at this point, right? That we've done it in the past and we know how to do it again. So it'll be interesting to see how much of a push there is to kind of upgrade the area around there and, and just the actual face of the convention, what it looks like. We also, as opposed to New York, know how to throw away our garbage. We have alleys. <laughs> if I were pitching Chicago, that would just be that would just be the pitch every time is we have alleys. We have alleys. <laughs> we can do things with garbage. <laughs> Sick burn, New York. It's true though. Yeah. We're yeah. a cleaner city. Yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Hard to argue with that. And of course, and you know, there'll be uh, a lot of follow stories about the economic impact of of what the DNC means for the city and all that. And then, of course, the I think the other big thing, maybe maybe ahead of us in 2024, is uh, well, Lee, you've been covering the Ed Burke trial, of course, and then the Mike Madigan trial will start. Is that that's March? I think right. That'll just have so many implications in so many parts of government. Is my feeling on that. Yeah, I was discussing this this morning earlier with the editors, and I referred to the Burke trial as the prequel to the Madigan trial, Um, you know, because they're both on corruption and, you know, the common denominator, as I mentioned earlier, is Danny Solis, the source of both of those tapes. Um, I've also seen a couple of players already pop up uh, at the Burke trial who are at Madigan. to sort of quote Gossip Girl spotted right. <laughs> uh, Dan Collins, lawyer for Madigan. And uh, yeah, we're already seeing, you know, I don't want to say interruptions, um, but, you know, the Supreme Court has a corruption case uh, that they are ruling on. Um, so uh, that has delayed sentencing right now uh, for the rest of the ComEd 4. So again, that'll be interesting to see how that affects all these other uh, corruption cases moving forward. Um, you know, of course, Illinois is a, is a great testing ground for this sort of thing. We have lots of corruption. So I'm sure Madigan won't be the last person to go on trial for this. Um, and uh, yeah, I, uh, I I should get something comfy to sit on because those Dirksen 
benches are not great, and I imagine I'm going to be there a while. Right, right, indeed. Um, and so, what other stories are you are you uh, that are kind of already top of mind for you in 2024 that that um, that you'll be interested to cover? Yeah, the, I mean, we we touched the big campaign, the big election next year is is for the White House, but locally, there's some interesting races, probably. Maybe most notable here are the two, the referendum campaign, which we touched on the Brink Chicago home, uh, real estate transfer tax push. Um, even if it's approved, it'll still have to be, a, you know, kind of legalized by the city council. So that will be something that plays out all, all spring. And then the other big race, this is, Lee's been covering it more than I, but the the state's attorney's race to, to replace outgoing state's attorney, Kim Fox. Um, that always has ramifications for Chicago and, and the county, right? Uh, so that's the that's the big local race I'm keeping an eye on, and then there's some smaller, you you know, only the real political stickos are really interested in these races. But those, uh, you know, seats for Democratic committeemen. Uh, there's a very interesting one on the northwest side uh, between Iris Martinez and, and Alderman or woman Rosanna Rodriguez Sanchez, and and those can kind of be. Uh, you know, juicier, they, they, something comes up and there'll be like big drama around it. I'm, I'm confident of that. Don't know exactly what it will be now, but those are, those are ones that the real political junkies can get into. Yeah. I'll elaborate on the state's attorney's race a little bit because uh, that is definitely going to be one to watch. So of course, Kim Fox, uh, she's kind of become uh, the, uh, uh, I guess, main villain, so to speak, of people like the Illinois Policy Institute. Um, and so she is not running again. And so we have uh, new candidates here. We have Clayton Harris III. Um, he has experience prosecuting narcotics as a Cook County assistant state's attorney. Um, he's also worked for former Mayor Richard M. Daley um, and former Illinois Governor Rod Blagojevich. So he has a print pretty interesting resume. Um, I actually interviewed him earlier this fall and I was going to bring up his time with Blago and uh, he actually brought it up himself, surprisingly. Um, so I think he's trying to get ahead of whatever uh, mud people are going to throw at him. And then of course, the other candidate here, uh, not to be confused with the other Burke, it's former Illinois appellate court justice Eileen O'Neill Burke. So unfortunately, she doesn't have the best SEO right now, but uh, she is running as well. And uh, it, it seems like right now that um, Burke is shaping up to be a little more like the conservative Democrat and uh, Harris is shaping up to be uh, more the progressive in the form of Fox. Um, you know, hard to say if he's going to be um, I guess as, as volatile as Fox was or or as newsworthy as Fox was maybe is the better word. Um, but he has been already anointed by Tony Preckwinkle, um, who, of course, you know, is kind of the kingmaker, rather queenmaker, we'll say, um, for progressive candidates uh, in Illinois and especially in Chicago. Uh, she was the one that also backed Johnson. You know, maybe are there going to be some similarities there? It should go without saying, though, that Clayton Harris also worked for Lyft at one time. Um, so Burke's campaign is trying to throw his progressive credentials into question there. Um, but, you know, I think the real thing to watch with this race, of course, is how both of these candidates approach crime. Um, 
you know, Kim Fox has become this nationally known figure, uh, for better or worse. She's like a progressive darling, but then, um, she is, uh, you know, always mentioned on Fox news. Um, so it, it'll be interesting to see, um, how this race shakes out. Cause I, I think it's going to be a real referendum on Fox rather than who these individual candidates are. All right. Well, thank you both. We will all keep turning to the two of you for the latest in the year ahead. Thanks for having us, Amy. Happy holidays. Yeah. Happy New Year. Coming up, Stellantis brings back 165 workers from its idled Belvedere plant. We'll talk about that and more right after this. You are the one who can help end hunger. The Greater Chicago Food Depository is working to meet the need, but the cost of food remains high, and many of your neighbors are struggling to afford groceries. Children are at greatest risk, with one in four facing hunger. Your neighbors are counting on you. Families, seniors on fixed incomes, veterans, you are the one who can help them. Give what you can. The Greater Chicago Food Depository, chicagosfoodbank.org. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. A cyber attack that shut down a title company's closings on Thursday is the third hacking incident to hit the Chicago area real estate industry in recent months. Crane's residential real estate reporter Dennis Rodkin reported that First American Financial posted a notice on Thursday morning saying it had experienced what they described as a cybersecurity incident. Their notice said, quote, in response, the company has temporarily taken certain systems offline. Rodkin noted that the company said the incident occurred on Wednesday. And Housing Wire reported that First American delayed all real estate closings that it had scheduled for Thursday. The company, based in Santa Ana, California, has offices in Chicago as well as several suburbs, including Arlington Heights, Lombard, and Westchester. Rodkin noted in reporting that First American is one of the biggest players in the nation's title insurance business, with a reported 21% market share in 2020 and $7.6 billion in revenue in 2022. And this is at least its second time in this position. Less than a month ago, the company agreed to pay a $1 million settlement in New York over exposure of customers' information in a 2019 hack, and the latest comes just a few weeks after a similar incident at a different title company, Fidelity National Financial, which is a Florida-based firm that controls brands including Chicago Title. That one scrambled closings locally and around the country for several days. And in August, hackers broke into a national real estate listing service, incapacitating listing sites in Northwest Indiana. Indiana and other parts of the country, but not in the immediate Chicago area. Cybersecurity Drive reported earlier this month, drawing on a report by an MIT professor that data breaches are at an all-time high. Rodkin reported that in the U.S., data breaches were up 20% for the first nine months of 2023, compared to the same period in 2022. Rodkin noted that the listings hack frustrated agents who wanted to get their listings posted, but these two title company hacks struck at companies that handle financial and identification details of their customers. The title company, of course, is a key player in a real estate transaction. Its pieces of the process include confirming that the title to the property is clear of obstacles like liens that would hinder transfer to the new owners and managing the volumes of paperwork exchanged during a closing. Baird and Warner agent Mike Greco told Cranes in November when the hack at Fidelity delayed one of his closings that without a title company's involvement, quote, the final steps in the transaction can't be done. 
Bloomberg reported that real estate-focused Trinity Investments is in talks to acquire the five-star Park Hyatt Zurich, according to people with knowledge of the matter. The transaction hasn't been finalized, cautioned one of the people, all of whom requested anonymity discussing confidential information. Chicago-based Hyatt Hotels earlier this year hired broker Jones Lang LaSalle to market the 138-room property, which could fetch around 400 million Swiss francs, which is about $467 million, according to reporting from Bloomberg News at the time. Hyatt said in March it would continue operating the hotel under a long-term management agreement after it had been sold. Several of the world's biggest hotel companies have moved to sell off real estate, including Hyatt, which has transitioned to a so-called asset light model where it operates but doesn't own the bulk of its hotels. CEO Mark Hoplamazian said in a November statement, quote, We continue to successfully execute our asset light transformation and growth strategy while returning meaningful capital to shareholders. In August, he said that since the beginning of 2017, the company has realized proceeds of $3.8 billion from sales of owned hotel real estate. Bloomberg noted in reporting that Honolulu-based Trinity in October said it had opened a London office reflecting what it described as its long-term belief in the strength of the lodging sector and the growth opportunity in the European hotel real estate market. The firm owns numerous hotels, including the Hyatt Regency Indian Wells Resort and Spa and the Hilton Los Cabos Beach and Golf Resort, according to its website. Vince Bond at Crane's sister publication Automotive News reported that some Stellantis workers who were laid off when the automaker idled its Jeep plant in Belvedere 10 months ago are now back at work handling parts distribution. Automotive News noted that it's the first step toward a nearly $5 billion commitment to Belvedere that Stellantis made in its new contract with the UAW. The company plans to open a $100 million Mopar parts hub there in 2024 before reopening the plant to make midsize pickups in 2027 and adding a battery plant in 2028. Automotive News also noted that Stellantis said Thursday that about 115 workers began processing parts at a warehouse near the plant for distribution to dealerships in recent days. About 50 others are undergoing training at a distribution center in Naperville and will transition to Belvedere next week. The automaker said it plans to consolidate 13 Mopar facilities into six larger ones, including the new Belvedere, quote, mega hub. The union said it opposed the consolidation but chose to accept it over the alternative of job cuts. Automotive News also reported that about 1,150 people worked at Belvedere Assembly, which made Jeep Cherokee SUVs when it shut down in February. The plan Stellantis agreed to with the UAW is expected to create thousands of additional jobs in the area, including 1,300 at a $3.2 billion joint venture battery plant. Stellantis is eliminating the wage gap between Mopar workers and their assembly plant counterparts, which the automaker says will make, quote, the transition from a position in a manufacturing facility facility to one in a parts distribution center seamless. That's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guests, Crane's reporters, Lee John Greco, Justin Lawrence, and John Pletz. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time. 
Want to dive deeper into the topics you've heard here? Read the full stories and get access to all of Crane's award-winning coverage with a Crane's Chicago Business subscription. Crane's Daily Gist listeners can get 20% off a one-year Crane's Chicago Business digital subscription by visiting chicagobusiness.com slash gist and using promo code gist at checkout. Once again, to redeem this offer, visit chicagobusiness.com slash gist and enter code gist to get this deal while it lasts.